0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And on this uh, podcast, we discuss a lot of topics that get down to the heart of what we are. Mm-hmm. What are we as human beings? Uh, and and who, is, who is the we in that sentence? Who is the I in any given sentence? you know we do a lot of navel gazing and we have a nice uh navel gazely topic for you today uh because it it does get down to the heart of what are we what are we really and and if uh, the the hypotheses that we're looking at in this episode hold true uh the answer is is far different than what we have thought even in the very recent past.
1: Yeah, because we have talked about the role of the microbiota in the past here, but now we're going to talk about something called the HALA genome. <laughs> Actually, just HALA genome. Um, that furthers this idea that we are all just sort of like skin wrappers and there's a bunch going on um, that determines our biological and in some ways our, our mental fates. Um, and it's not just genes here. So that's the big story with the hologenium
0: Yes, and that skin wrapper description is pretty accurate because uh, when you get down to uh, to the cells in our body, the genes in our body, it all adds up to about 10% of us.
1: Yeah, because we're outnumbered 10 to 1 by these bacterial cells. So there's so much more going on um, at the surface and below. And, in fact, there's this idea that evolution itself may be driven by bacteria.
0: Which would make sense, I mean, just on a very basic level. Because, again, 10 only 10% of us is us. And that's a ridiculous sentence to, to make. Because then as <laughs> we evolve then surely I mean, that other 90% has at least some sort of voting rights. If not equal voting rights, then at least some sort of voting rights. It would just stand to reason, right?
1: It would stand to reason, but let's talk about what the microbiome, which is made up of all this differing bacteria, has been up to and do a quick little recap of the microbiome project. Um, This was funded by the National Institute of Health. We're talking about 200 scientists, 80 institutions around the world that sequenced... Uh, the genetic material of bacteria taken from 250 people, 11,000 samples that came out of this. And what we found out is that he, each human contains up to 8 million bacterial genes in contrast to just 22,000 human genes. So again, outnumbered, outnumbered. And uh, this is according to Michael Pollan in his article, Some of My Best Friends Are Germs. He said that bacteria can swap genes and pieces of DNA with itself. This is so... Crazy to me, mm-hmm. um, he says. It's an incredibly important adaptation that allows a mac- microbiota, which could be exposed to a toxin or a new food, to swiftly come up with precisely the right genes needed to fight something or eat it. And so we, you've talked about this actually a lot in the past. That the gut bacteria, you know, without it, we just couldn't exist. It's breaking down food for us. It's allowing us to get the nutrients out of it, and also to take the stuff that's a little dicey and jettison it.
0: Yeah, at at the very least, we have an extremely symbiotic relationship with all this bacteria. Mm -hmm. That, in 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 the same way that uh, that we depend on on fire and and cooking to externalize part of our digestion, we've also, in effect, brought in outside workers uh, to to help with the with the digestion of the food. So it's. uh, So, so yeah, it has this huge effect on our ability to actually consume the nutrients we need to survive.
1: Yeah. And we also have talked about how, uh, newborns are slathered in a new sort of microbiome for themselves via uh, vaginal births. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that the bacterial life of newborns are actually seeded before they're even Ejected out into the
0: world. Wow! So even before they get to go through the, the birth canal and just pick up all these new and exciting bacteria and mm-hmm. become a part of who they are, they are they are already uh, to, to use like a, a, a prior way of, of looking at it. You would say they're already infected. They're already tainted by the bacteria. But right. but as we're discussing in this episode, it's it's wrong to even think of it in terms of. of uh, of a taint or a, uh, a, staining of the, of the individual because there isn't really this pure, pristine yeah. individual. I mean, you can do that. You can remove the, the microbiota uh, uh, from an, from an individual uh, member of a species, from an individual organism, but with often dire results.
1: Right. I think the old view in the past was that any sort of bacteria was bad, but yeah. now we've come Sweep to a better understanding yeah. of it. And it is really interesting to know that a fetus is being seeded via the placenta or the cord blood, mm-hmm. uh, because you know that gives us this idea that you, you cannot be separate from it. You cannot be this pristine individual who is born completely germ- germ-free, that this is part and parcel of us. In fact, Joseph knew, he is a University of Florida pediatrician, he actually examined the, the first stools out of infants that were just born and found that, yes, indeed, uh, they're guts had been active and had been seeded to create um, all these different bacteria that he found in their stools. And he said that we might provide mothers with a microbial cocktail. This is his idea, that it's so important that we may be able in the, in the future to give mothers who are gestating some sort of microbial cocktail that would really help to ensure that that infant was born with the optimal bacterial profile.
0: Wow. Yeah, I it, it keep coming back in my mind as, as I'm reading about this topic uh, to uh, a new ship constructed in a shipyard, and then when it's time to put that ship out to sea you, you can 't just slide it out and, and let it float off uh, to nowhere it 's got to have a crew. It has to have uh, um, individuals aboard the ship to make it function to uh, to to make it seaworthy and then over time, of course you 're going to have rats and stowaways uh, living on it as well or or you know luxurious passengers who don 't actually contribute to the overall health of the ship mm-hmm. uh, at least in any way that that uh, that you know, the people shoveling coal would understand, but, uh, but, but certainly you have to have at least a skeleton crew when it rolls out into the water.
1: I like that. I like that idea that I've got a crew inside of me right yeah. now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's like you were the Starship Julie and you have a certain, uh, um, microbacterial crew that is, uh, in effect, kind of running the show. I mean, with some certain, you know, it's like the Star Trek Enterprise. There's a computer system that's doing other stuff. There, there, you have the genes. You have, you have the cells. Yeah. But then you have a, a, also this uh, rich, uh, diverse alien uh, crew that is making everything function at optimal levels.
1: I was thinking more like I was a rap star okay. with Oh, crew. yeah,
0: with your crew, like rolling in with your crew. I was rolling yeah. with my crew. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, that's good. good
1: (laughs) All right, so how could bacteria inform evolution? Well, let's take a quick break, and when we get back, we will dive into that. All right, we're back. We are, and we are going to talk about the case of the parasitic wasp in order to get into this material about gut bacteria specifically, and how it might be driving speciation. But first, speciation.
0: Yes, we're talking about the process by which new species evolve. Well, we've all seen, uh, seen trees of, of, uh, of different uh, organisms uh, branching out. You have uh, one life form, and then it uh, ends up uh, diverting into two separate life forms, and they stem from each other, and it becomes this grand uh, tree of evolution spreading across uh, millions of years. But how does that break up occur? How does how does that uh, that divide happen between this species and that?
1: Yeah, and that's what we're going to get into. And um, you know, we're, what we are talking about is a particular species that developed g- different genetic characteristics to the point where they cannot mate with the original species and produce a fertile offspring. So, a good example of this are horses and donkeys. Right. Yes. They descended from a common ancestor, but their genetic makeup diverged, and their offspring, a mule, is infertile. So why talk about Nasonia wasps? Well, it turns out that there are four very closely related species in it. And when these species interbreed, they make what's called a hybrid. And sometimes these hybrids die. So the question becomes, why do hybrids die between closely related species? Yeah. And to try to answer this, Seth Bordenstein, he's a co-author of research on microbiota and speciation, um, looked at these wasps and Tested a hypothesis that a new species of animal can arise through changes in gut bacteria or the the gut microbiome, which is an amazing sort of new lens to look at this whole idea of evolution.
0: Yeah, like his breakthrough here was that if you if you remove the microbiome from the equation with these mm-hmm. wasps, then the uh, hybrid offspring will survive to a certain extent, mm-hmm. it, uh, as opposed to just being doomed from the get go. So it, it's showing that it's not just the, the, the genetics at play. It's also the microbiomes of each species. So even though they're it, – it's kind of like with, with two individuals. It's like, well, they're physically compatible, but then they have no emotional compatibility, you know, et cetera. There, you know, any number of examples you can, you, can, you can make up with people where on one level everything lines up, but on another more important level they don't. And in here for these, uh, these two species to really successfully breed and pr- mm-hmm. produce a viable offspring – not only do the genetics have to be uh, uh, at least interlockable, but also the microbiome.
1: Which is, you know, pretty big news. Yeah, because we're, yeah. we're talking
0: about the diet, we're talking about the crew that occupies the ship, and uh, it, y- and you can't necessarily combine the crews without there being a lot of uh, uh, unrest. I think there's a whole uh, Battlestar Galactica episode about that.
1: I think so, yeah. and, uh, you know, let's talk about crews rolling, too. You right. Yeah, know, yeah, one crew rolling against another.
0: Exactly. There's going to be uh there's going to be unrest. There's going to be mischief. <laughs> All
1: right. So, this leads to this idea of the hologenome. So, what is the hologenome? It's basically made up of um, you know, within the organism, a cell's mitochondria, the cell's DNA along with microbiota. And Richard Jefferson and Eugene Rosenberg, they came up with a description of this theory. And Rosenberg actually stumbled upon a 1989 paper by Diane Dodge, who was then a postdoc at Yale University. And she found that changing the diet of a fruit fly could alter the fly's mating choices after just two generations, which made Rosenberg kind of scratch his head and wonder if he could do the same thing in his lab.
0: Yeah, so basically his findings were that if you take take this single species, mm-hmm. you split them into two different populations. You give them each an individual diet. Then the microbiome is going to change. And eventually these individuals are going to, they're, they're going to no longer be compatible with each other.
1: Yeah, that's right. What they did is they took these, the single species that they split and they gave them the two different types. They brought mm-hmm. them back together and they found that they would not mate with each other. Yes. Because they then had different gut microbiomes. So that brings up this question of like, you know, as a vegetarian, if I start eating Big Macs, mm-hmm. is my husband going to back away from me?
0: Because you were both vegetarians. We
1: were both vegetarians. Okay. If I change my gut bacteria, and I don't tell him. Let's just say, (laughs) let's throw that in the mix. For a week, I eat this. I don't tell him. um, You know, my gut microbiome changes. Will he begin to sort of find excuses, you know, to get out of the house I have a, well, around
0: I have a feeling that if you eat like a big mac a day for a week uh-huh. after being a, a vegetarian all this time uh-huh. he's going to know <laughs> because <laughs> cause your body is going to uh, going, going to let everyone know that there's a problem.
1: Well, it's it's true. I think that there would be some really big signs, um, and I won't go into what those signs might be. But Seth Bordenstein was was faced with this very same question: What if what if humans did this? Um, would would the same sort of thing happen? And he said, Well, probably not. Uh, but we do know that microbes affect the way we smell, and and if individuals choose to date or find the partners based on their smell, then that is a form of discrimination that's occurring. If it happens to the population or species level, then new species will be arising. So while anything is possible in biology, I. Doubt out that humans will be splitting into different species
0: yeah because i mean the other thing is that humans have a lot of additional complexity uh, layered on top of uh, of their smell related choices so they're not just going to necessarily be like oh well she's she's really interesting and uh and i'm very attracted to her but uh you know she she eats a little more garlic than i would like or or i'm uh you know i'm a, a, a true vegetarian and she's a what's the what is it if you're a vegetarian but you eat eggs
1: uh, you're ovo-lacto-vegetarian. Yeah. Like, you know, I guess, or you're not vegan.
0: Yeah. I guess, you know, I can imagine that there are varying degrees to which people are hardcore enough about their diet to where it would be a problem. But, I mean, mm-hmm. I know people, I know one person who is, you know, pretty hardcore vegan, and her husband's not, and they seem to get along fine.
1: It happens. Yeah. You're right. There are examples.
0: Yeah, and, they're, and they have a child, so they're not, like, two different species, and they can they can actually breed. So. There you
1: go. It's true. All right. So, yeah, with humans, it's not acting on us at that level, but it's fascinating to see these flies, essentially the same species, diverging from each other just based on the gut bacteria.
0: Now, of course, we should mention hologenome theory is a theory, and it's one that people like to fight about, especially Mm -hmm. with evolutionary biologists who are not necessarily on board uh, in all cases with uh, this theory, with this new way of looking, because evolutionary theory is all about competition, survival of the fittest, right? And we'll have more on that in a minute, but um, the reason I mention it uh, here is that uh, I was looking at a study of, involving killer whales. And this is a, a study that was uh, conducted by Andrew Foote, an evolutionary biologist at the University of Copenhagen. Now, why is he looking at, uh, at killer whales? Because he's interested in uh, sympathetic speciation. Okay. Now, this is the idea that you have the speciation we're talking about for mm-hmm. two You have one particular organism, one species, and over time it diverges into two. And uh, killer whales have been of particular interest uh, to people because of sympathetic speciation. This is occurring without a a geographic barrier. They're in the same area, but you have just a... Two different groups of the same species mm-hmm. engaging in different diets and uh, and then different behaviors to pursue that particular prey animal and then eventually the the argument is they're going to become two different species and we see that uh, to a certain extent happening already uh, with killer whale populations in the North Pacific and Antarctic where you have multiple genetically distinct populations they haven't been formally described as separate species but uh, they prey they have different prey preferences mm-hmm. so one group one pack of killer whales they are mammal eaters they're eating the seals and that's all. They eat, so they have uh, specific uh, patterns for hunting those seals that they pass down, and then you have another uh, group that eat fish, and they have specific patterns for uh, for pursuing those prey. And these two uh, packs do not uh, intermingle, and they have different ways. Their their communication is even a little different. So they're they're arguably well on their way to becoming two different species. So um, it's a it's a possible example of uh, of this uh, this uh effect on speciation.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up because it does kind of mix sort of our our more traditional views of speciation, Mm -hmm. which sometimes have to do with populations being isolated or not being isolated or just geographically in different areas and how that might affect um, the species. And And then you have the diet in that mix as well.
0: Yeah. Now, I I just want to mention this is a 2013 study, uh, just from August, and foot again is an evolutionary biologist, so he's not pursuing this uh, this whole genome theory as as an explanation for what's right. happening with the killer whales, but uh, but I feel like that's a very strong possibility here because we're looking at diet effect speciation uh, in uh, a given population.
1: Yeah, so that that makes a very interesting case there. Um, well, let's take another quick break, and when we get back, we are going to look more at the criticism leveled here at the whole genome theory and how it might or might not square with.
0: All right, we're back. Again, we're talking about the hologenome. We're talking about looking at the aggregate genome of an organism. We're looking at cells, mitochondria, cells, DNA, microbiome, all of it together in the to, to basically constitute the total genome of the a, a particular organism.
1: Yeah. in the hologenome. again, this is a very new concept. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Jefferson, Rosenberg, and to some degree, Diane Dodd, they all contributed to this idea. Then you have Seth Bordenstein really sort of trying to run with it a bit more. Um, and I, I did want to point out that Seth Bordenstein really engages people on this topic quite a bit. He does this through his blog, which is called Symbiontism. And he also does it through his Twitter feed. And
0: Hashtag Hologeno.
1: Hashtag HoloGenome, of, of course. And uh, I did want to read a couple of things that he wrote. Someone said, I'm not getting how HoloGenome is different than co-evolution systems with correlated inheritance, i.e. body lice. And his uh, ex- his explanation was, because you can live without parasites like lice... But you can't live without your microbiome. So, again, he's making the case that this is part and parcel of the, the sort of operating system that we have. And just think back to Michael Pollan's example of how some bacteria can swap DNA mm-hmm. to respond to the environment.
0: Yeah, again, the ship runs just fine without the rats, not so much without the crew.
1: Yeah, and, you know, I was thinking about this paired with epigenetics, and I will not get into that, but, you yeah. know, that's that idea that you have this extra bit of information glommed on um, to your DNA, and, you know, depending on what's going on with the person's uh, immune system or their external conditions, yeah. like famine, for instance. Yeah, environment,
0: uh, their situation, Uh Flipping on or off individual genes.
1: Right, we're talking about generations yeah. after that that are actually affected by that person's experience. So nothing is cut and dried here. So back to evolution, you know, for us that has always seemed, um, you know, fairly straightforward. At this point, we're talking about variation, selection, and heredity. But now you do have this bacterial component, or perhaps we have it. And I wanted to just mention that there's there's one other little layer here in the example of mice and how their brains develop. And this is a 2011 experiment that showed that mice need their gut flora for the brain to really develop normally because germ-free mice with no microbiota, ones that were removed, showed severe deformities in their brain structure. And that indicates that the brain and the nervous system is dependent upon this proper gut microbiota being in place.
0: Yeah, and that, I mean that is obviously huge because a lot of what we've talked about in the past, just on the show, and a lot of mm-hmm. the information is generally out there, you know it's easy to get behind the idea oh well your gut bacteria it's good for you it's good to have it's good to have around because it'll help you digest it'll Eat help some you yogurt. do this. Yeah. yeah you know you go on some antibiotics for a, a UTI and then you you end up taking a bunch of probiotics to sort of balance uh, the the ship again but but here we're seeing you know examples of of severe brain deformities so Obviously, it's not just a matter of it's good to have. It's necessary to have. And at it, least in mice.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Right. And then, then the question is, to what extent does that, you know, inform other species right. uh, of how their brains and their gut bacteria work in tandem? So again, this gives us the idea that genes are not the blueprint that we thought they were in the past. And this is from Science 2.0, Gerhard Adam. He said, whatever else we may think it is clear that viewing an organism and natural selection from the pure perspective of genes is incomplete. Therefore, it may be more precise to say that genes provide the basic environment while microbes manipulate and refine to produce a working ecosystem. As a result, as goes their success, so goes ours.
0: Crew, yep. Crew on a ship. Crew on the ship.
1: But then you have someone like Andy Gardner of the University of Oxford, and he sort of counterpoints this by saying... I would be less inclined to bundle all these cells together as a single integrated organism. And he makes this is an excellent point because sometimes the microbial cells will be doing things that aren't good for the host. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we see microbes in a new light in which we see them in a more beneficial light. But it is true that disease and illness are a result of um, bad bacteria. Not to call them bad or good, but you know. Yeah,
0: but of course the same thing can be said about genes. They can be said about, yes. um, you know, immune functions. There's, it's a it's a complicated ship, and there's a lot that can go wrong, both in the hardware of the ship and in the, uh, the, the crew members, the stowaways, the rats, et cetera.
1: Yeah, and, uh, again, here we have Bordenstein saying, look, I don't know about this hologenome yet. Basically, he's saying dogma and linear thinking. It could also be wrong, but a hypothesis is not wrong until tested. So it's out there. It's out there for people's consideration. Um, is it going to become the sort of you know unified theory of everything for the human body? We don't know, but I think it definitely adds to the whole conversation of how our bodies are actually responding to their environments, to their genetics. Uh, to what we put in them.
0: Yeah, and that's really what uh, these guys are pushing with the hologenome thing. And they're not saying, all right, we have it, here's the answer to everything. They're saying, we think there's something to this. We think this is a really important theory. We want other people to explore this uh, in, in in regards to other organisms, other species, and, of course, uh, the the human body itself.
1: You know, I am participating in the Ubiome. Um, this is the citizen uh, science project, mm-hmm. and this week I am shipping off my microbiota samples. Oh! I can't wait. Gonna yeah. get it back. Gonna find out what my crew is doing there. Excellent. Yeah.
0: In an envelope? Is I it think just I'm like a manila envelope? You can just put it all in? Um, Ziploc?
1: Yeah, that's just basically that's it. Good. Yeah, it's just a couple of Q-tips. No, it's it's much more elaborate than that. And they want to know, obviously, like what your diet has consisted of, and mm-hmm. you report all of that along with the samples that you provide.
0: Excellent. Yeah. Are you going to share the results? I am. Yeah? Yeah. Now, another criticism that some people level at this is that it's just kind of a um, a rehashed version of the Lamarckian model. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, of course, goes back to 19th century. Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, who had this uh, theory of evolution uh, that incorporated the then popular idea that organisms could pass on adaptive traits that they acquired during their life uh, times mm-hmm. the the classic example of this is a giraffe is trying to eat the the leaves at the top of the tree mm-hmm. so he strains his neck and then his uh, the offspring that those giraffes have then has a longer neck mm-hmm. because the the parent organisms strained their neck it's it's a little more involved than that but it was a popular theory for a while and then came darwin's uh theory that is similar but uh but more nuanced and uh, and then uh, lamarck faded into the background.
1: It's true. Although Lamarck has uh, enjoyed a resurgence as yeah. of late. So, uh, you know, to me, it's just reconsidering it. Not reconsidering, you know, evolution and saying, let's throw out the baby with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. I think it's just saying what other things are going on.
0: Yeah. And I, uh, I also want to add that I think understanding the hollow genome, having a thorough understanding of the whole genome is, of course, what we're going to need if we're going to ever teleport people uh, across the room or across the planet or to another, to another world, right? Because I, of, I was waiting for that joke. Yeah, because you've seen the fly. The whole deal there yes. is, oops, he accidentally got his DNA spliced with the fly DNA, mm-hmm. and then monstrous consequences occur uh, in Cronenberg's wonderful film. And and even, I remember at an early age watching it and, and knowing, well, you know, we have, like, uh, you know, things living in our eyebrows. And then later on, well, we have all these things living in our gut. And then when you start looking at this 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 fact that we are only 10% of us, it really complicates. You'd have to teleport not just this one organism, but mm-hmm. all of these organisms, and have it all come out on the other side completely uh, intact and in working order, without any sailors, you know, stuck uh, in in part of the ship, in the walls.
1: That's right. You want you want the ship to be fairly intact, yeah, and not have appendages sticking out.
0: Yeah, I'm, now I'm drawing in other teleportation sci-fi films, but anyway, uh, you get my point. It really it complicates and changes what we think about. Uh, when we think about who we are,
1: I just like that I went to the place of you biome, and you went to that place.
0: That's how it goes. All right, hey! Before we close out, let's call the robot over. We haven't really been doing much listener mail, and, yeah. and we, we tried to make it up to him with a whole episode, but we really need to have regular interaction with the robot if we if we want to maintain a healthy relationship with our technology.
1: Yeah, and put that oil can away.
0: Exactly. I don't know. All right. We heard a lot from uh, listeners on our Uncanny Music episode about the the science of uncanny music. Why does scary or creepy or weird music have this effect on us? Is it cultural? Is it something innate? And uh, here's just one of uh, the responses. This is B from Boston writing and says, Hi, Blow Your Mind team. Your talk about why music gives us chills brings to mind a little-known neurological quirk. There are plenty of people who, despite loving music and feeling emotionally stirred by it, never experience actual chills. I've been a musician my whole life. But I always assumed that when people said the music gave me chills, it was a melodramatic figure of speech. I've been brought to tears by music before and felt completely rocked by powerful passages, but never once have I felt a tingle. It wasn't until stumbling on articles about the phenomenon that I learned that these claims of chills are real. Meanwhile, my boyfriend was shocked to think that music could be experienced without these sensations. Since this discovery, I've done a few uh, impromptu surveys of friends and co-workers. In all of these environments, the vast majority of people do get chills, but a steady 10%-ish have shyly conceded that they have also never felt them. The brain is a funny thing. I have no idea what makes some of us chill haves and have-nots, but I would love to learn more about about it uh, did you see anything about this uh, side of things in your research love the show and thanks for all you do i say that did not pop up in uh, in our research uh, but it does make me want to explore the chills uh, as as a singular topic at some point in the future like really get into goose flesh really get into chill bumps really get into pins and needles
1: yeah i, well, because- I guess pins
0: and needles is different
1: uh, but it's the still. I think it's the same sensation, right? You're on pins and needles. You're, you're yeah. gooseflesh You're you're alert. Yeah. Um. It is a very interesting question as to why we would all of a sudden look like plucked chickens. Um. And there's a lot more to it. Obviously, there there is some holes in the research. People mm-hmm. aren't exactly sure why. But, but that's a good topic to cover. And we got so many good emails about that uh, that episode. Um. People sent us a lot of great links too yes. to to movies that have been recut. With scary music, like Mrs. Doubtfire.
0: Yes, uh, um, Mary Poppins, of course. The, yes. The, the Poppins one, where yeah. it, it turns into a horror film by just uh, changing around the, the music and the scenes.
1: Which is easy to do with that movie, because if you look at it now, it actually, you know, because it's like foggy old London, it has this sort of ominous feeling to it, mm-hmm. just in the tones, the gray tones.
0: Well, I love the argument that she was actually a time lord, you know, like the doctor yes. of yeah. Doctor Who. Yes. Yeah.
1: Um, so, yeah, there, there are many different ways to recast things given the, the context of the music.
0: All right. Well, hey, if you want to get in touch with us, you can uh, find us in a number of places. First and foremost, go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is our website. All the podcasts show up there. All the podcasts. Not just the ones that are on iTunes, but the backlog going back through the uh, the centuries. The hidden ones. Yes. And, uh, and then that's where uh, we do our blog posts, our videos show up there. Everything we do, that's the mothership. But you can also find us on social media, Facebook. We do a lot there. Twitter, you can find us there as well. Tumblr, we're always feeding that thing. And, of course, you can find us on YouTube as Mind Stuff Show.
1: And if you want to share your thoughts with us about today's episode or really any other episodes, you can always drop us a line, and you can do so at BlowTheMind at Discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com yeah.